Good evening. Um, welcome here to 5 by 15. And it's so great to see so many of you joining us tonight. Um, I'm glad that we didn't have to cancel this one because somehow or another, Robert Harris is as ever right on the money with his new book, Act of Oblivion. Act of Oblivion, which we're going to go on and discuss, but briefly, it is the hunt for the people who killed King Charles I. And indeed, on Monday morning of this week, the uh, our current king stood on the same steps where King Charles I was sentenced to death, which, of course, is a very big part of this fantastic book. Robert Harris is familiar to many of you, to all of us, as a, a thriller writer and a writer of extreme skill. Uh, he's written books about Dreyfus, about Hitler, about Stalin. His one recent book was about Munich and the peace and just been turned into a fantastic film. But he's also written a trilogy about the Roman Empire and uh, an even a book about was Tony Blair, the ghost book, which was has been made into a film, which we are unable to see because it was directed by Polanski. But I gather from people who have seen it is quite fantastic. That's more to our loss. However, I'm very glad that he's here, especially in this momentous week. And I'd just like to say the book details will be in the chat and are there now. Do buy it. It's a terrific read. And Robert will be taking questions uh, on all of this and including uh, what's happening in our country right at the moment. So with no further ado, Robert, big welcome to 5 by 15. It's fantastic to have you here after all this time. Hi, Rosie. Nice to see you. Yeah, and congratulations on this really, really great book. Um, before we get stuck into the plot, um, what have you felt about this week and the ascension of Charles III? Because it was a long time since we've had a King Charles. Yes. Um, well, I, of course, first inevitable sense of loss that the, the, the Queen has gone. And then uh, this extraordinary sense of continuity um, with Charles taking over, a role he's obviously practised for for, for for decades, really. Um, and I felt curious. I mean, I was an old, well, in some ways I still am an old lefty, but I felt a kind of um, uh, relief that we live in a constitutional monarchy. Um, just before he died, I was at a party with where Eric Hobsbawm was the great Marxist historian. Mm -hmm. and curiously, I had a conversation with him where he said that the best most civilised societies to live in were constitutional monarchists. They had the best guarantee of freedom. And I think if you look across the Atlantic at America, uh, I'm very glad of the separation of powers between the head of state, who we can all get behind, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the political leadership, um, especially when the country is as divided as it is now. So um, I think that one of the things we owe 1660, and indeed, in a way, the act of oblivion uh, is this constitutional settlement, which, when so much else seems to have been going wrong for us just lately, I do think at least that is going right, curiously. I think that's um, that's really interesting. But if we go back to your Charles I, um, he was much more than just a, a head of state, wasn't he? Yes, I mean, he, he saw himself, he was also the... He was the head of state as the chief executive. Um, he certainly, um, I think, um, had a belief in the absolute power of the monarchy. 
uh, and uh, you know he he was certainly in the in the line or the pattern of the kings of France or the czars of Russia that were to come. That he saw himself as 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 all powerful, and um, it was a good thing that we got rid of him. I think, and I uh, and we set a trend that the French followed 150 years later, and the Russians 250 years later. It's a staggering thing that that. England cut off that of its king in the 17th century and was a republic for 11 years. I think a lot of people in this country actually don't realise that we were a republic for 11 years. Why do you think that's... I mean, you said that was a good thing, that we that essentially we killed the king. Well, I, I don't... The book is ambivalent and I'm ambivalent about the justice of the killing of the king. I don't think that... Uh, I don't think I think it's hard to suggest that he had a fair trial, for instance. Mm -hmm. But um, in the end, revolutions are not a lot to do with fairness and legal niceties. But it was probably better that we got the whole thing out of the way in the 17th century than we waited until nearly the 19th or, God help us, the 20th to do it. I think that it, I think that we had a constitutional settlement. We had 1660, a pact between Parliament and the King, and then 1688, a, a more formal constitutional settlement. And I think that that served us pretty well and was the foundation of uh, the success of Britain uh, in the centuries that followed. Uh, so I think it was, uh, I think it was, I mean, you, you could have done this whole thing maybe without cutting off his head. I think that's the tragedy. You could have got, uh, you, you could have reached a settlement with uh, an heir, uh, perhaps, uh, but Cromwell said we should cut off the king's head with a crown upon it. Uh, and they went the full radical uh, route. But in the end, it was a step too far. And in the, in the end, the country wanted a king for the stability. I think that's really interesting, the notion that it, it was a step too far. But also, you can kind of understand why they had to take it. So why do you think that Cromwell and what he did lasted really for such a tiny length of time in the long length of time that we have been here? Well... I think this goes to what we've been witnessing in the last few days. Um, the country needs a symbol to unite around. Uh, and the parliamentarians, the Republicans got rid of the king. And then they thought, well, you know, let's now rule with Bradshaw as head of the council and we'll have various parliamentary committees that run the country and all will be well. But of course, nobody could connect with these faceless politicians and army officers. And it was merely because there was Cromwell around, a huge personality, a huge figure, whether you agreed with him or not, uh, that people were prepared to rally around Cromwell and that he became essentially the king in all but name. And indeed, very nearly in name, he clearly would have, I think, yeah. accepted the crown, but for the opposition of some of the army. And that made it impossible for him. Uh, so it didn't last because in the end, it went against the grain of human nature. You're going to need a big figure. And uh, that seems to be the lesson of history. And uh, a monarch is easier to, to, to handle than maybe a military dictator, which is what Cromwell effectively was. So when Charles II came back, and in a way your book begins, um, did he come back? I know he was not a very good king and all the rest of it, but he came back as a different kind of monarch 
following those years of being a republic? Yeah, there was a deal was struck. Essentially, the uh, the most powerful military man left after Cromwell was uh, Monk, who commanded the army in Scotland, and uh, he stepped into a kind of power vacuum uh, 18 months or so after uh, Cromwell's death, when there had just been sort of chaos, really, uh, because no one, a lot of people in the army didn't want to follow Richard Cromwell, who was his son, who was Cromwell's nominated successor. So a deal was done to bring the king back. And uh, it was the act of oblivion, the title of the novel, was agreed really between Sir Edward Hyde, who became mm-hmm. Lord Clarendon, and uh, uh, General Monk, who became who, who became Alba, the Duke of Albemarle, that there would be a uh, settlement uh, that was something like the South African Truth and Reconciliation process. Uh, all um, crimes, uh, all hostilities from uh, the Civil War would be cancelled, forgotten, a line would be drawn under the past. And it was pretty effective, actually. I mean, Cro- Richard Cromwell, Henry Cromwell, Cromwell's other powerful son, not, not, you know, they both lived unmolested lives after uh, the, the uh, Stuart Restoration. The only exception was those who'd had a hand in the execution of the king, either signed his death warrant or or sat in judgment upon him, and they were required to surrender themselves for the king's mercy. And a few of them, or several dozen of them, were foolish enough to do so and rapidly learned that there wouldn't be a lot of mercy. Uh, and uh, the rest went on the run. And that's really what the novel is about. It's It's about the hunt for the ones who refused to surrender themselves. And were there was there a sense that that was the right? I mean, in, in lots of ways, apart from the fact that when they found them, they did horrible things to them, which I want you to describe in a minute. But it's very sophisticated somehow, this this act of oblivion. As you say, I mean, truth and reconciliation feels very modern and very sophisticated. And if you took out the actual fact of that, how they killed them, you would have a you would have an amazingly good solution to modern problems. Yes, I I think that that's right. I mean, in fact, it's a kind of miracle that uh, uh, after the bloodshed of the Civil War, after the passions and the divisions in the country, the Civil War didn't reignite. Um, I'm sure that the heroes of my novel, Colonel uh, Whaley and Colonel Goff, uh, thought that the whole thing would reignite. And I think a lot of the people, the men that fled, um, the regicides, as they were called, who fled to Holland and to Germany and to Switzerland, and these two that I write about to New England, they thought that it was only a matter of time before the Civil War began again, and they came back. Um, but it didn't. Uh, the act of oblivion worked. And uh, it was a sophisticated piece of legislation. And I think that uh, you know it probably saved this country a great deal of bloodshed and, and laid the foundations, really, for us becoming this great power, because Cromwell had laid the foundations, in a way, by founding the New Model Army, which was the most yeah. powerful force, fighting force, probably in the world, and a big navy and a Western design to move into the Caribbean and, of course, the expansion in America. And this was the foundation of the British Empire. And you had then, under this settlement between Parliament and the Crown, you you had the kind of atmosphere that enabled the scientific revolution, which then began in the 17th century, to take place. So, you know, the act of oblivion, I think, is a 
is a is a key part of our heritage. So you picked out these two colonels, uh, Whaley and Goff, and you say you only made up one person, and that is this character called Richard Naylor, who is a, a fevered uh, mercenary type, wonderful character who decides to pursue them to the ends of the earth. But how did you, do you want to just tell the story of A, how you found Whaley and Goff and what they did and how they tried to escape? Well, succeeded, actually. Yeah, I mean, the book, the genesis of the novel was uh, a line on Twitter, actually, about uh, the greatest manhunt of the 17th century. And I saw this and I thought, immediately, I thought, 17th century manhunt, that sounds very interesting. And it was this hunt for the scores of uh, regicides and uh, that went on for more than a decade. And... Uh, the only thing that was missing from this story, which has been written about in several books, was uh, a regicide hunter, as it were, who did this. Someone must have done it. Someone must have found all the evidence, the records. Someone must have uh, intercepted the mail, uh, closed the ports, uh, interrogated the prisoners, briefed the prosecution. I mean, you know, there, there has to have been a kind of central figure. So I thought, well, why don't I invent that man? Uh, and I did. He's called Richard Naylor, as you say. And I, I did quite a lot of work on the structure of government in those days. Where would you put such a person in the administration? And he would, it seems to me, probably have worked for the Privy Council, for a subcommittee of the Privy Council, which would have dealt with the regicides. So I made him the secretary of that and then, of course, I had a place where he worked, Whitehall Palace, and then, and I gave him a sort of story. So I created that figure, and then I needed someone for him to pursue in particular. And 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 Whaley and Goff, I were interesting to me. They went to New England, which was fascinating in itself. It meant that I could set a lot of the book, most of the book actually, three quarters probably in America. Um, and they were fascinating. Uh, Colonel Whaley uh, was about 60 in 1660. He was he had been Cromwell's cousin. They'd clearly been very close. They were at university in Cambridge at the same time, lived briefly in London together at the same time. When Cromwell raised his regiment that became the Ironsides, there were five troops of cavalry. He gave his cousin Whaley command of one of them. Whaley rose to be a very senior uh, cavalry commander, and when the protectorate came in, he lived next door in King Street, next door to Whitehall Palace, where his cousin was uh, in residence. And he was at Cromwell's deathbed, one of only about five or six men admitted. So we can see he was central. And not only that, from my point of view, for about seven or eight months, he had custody of the king, Charles I, with whom he got on reasonably well. Uh, he fled to America, and with him went his son-in-law, William Goff, a quite different character, 20 years his junior, a political rad radical who'd spoken prominently at the Putney debates, uh, who uh, was a millenarian, thought that the world would end in 1666, thought that, uh, believed strongly in the execution of the king. Um, so I thought it was quite funny to yoke these two characters together. I mean, I loved my late uh, father-in-law, but I wouldn't have wanted to go on the run with him for 15 years, uh, live, sheltering in attics and barns and cellars. So... It's about these three characters. It's about the regicide hunter, and it's about these two men trying to survive in America, and uh, also because of his. Because this is an era when people wrote 
autobiographies for the first time in many ways. You had uh, uh, Clarendon Hyde wrote his uh, great autobiography. Uh, Ludlow, General Ludlow wrote one. Um, you know, there were quite a few. So um, it was plausible that Edward Whaley, in the wastes of America and all this time on the run, would have written his own autobiography. And so I was able to have flashbacks to the Civil War. So that's the, that's the novel, really. Yes. So when you arrive, when they arrive in New England, and it's totally fascinating, your descriptions and information about New England. I think there's there's a line, 300,000 people living in an archipelago of settlements. 30,000, actually. Only 30,000. 30. Sorry. OK, yeah. right. Well, that's even more strange because they they journey from place to place and nobody is connected to anybody else. And they have to hide the entire time. And you very quickly get the sense that they have escaped to another kind of hell. Yes. I mean, they pitched up in July 1660 in Boston and then went straight to Cambridge, Massachusetts, just outside, stayed there for about six months. Uh, then it got, to, uh, then the warrant caught up with them and then they fled and they trekked in the winter uh, more than 100 miles across to the Connecticut River and went down to, uh, eventually, to New Haven, which was a kind of extreme Puritan um, enclave, uh, and hid out there for a while. And then they were, then they had to try and then they had to leave there. They hid in the woods and in the hills around uh, New Haven for a while. Uh, then they went to Milford, uh, and Connecticut, and uh, then. When that got too hot, they fled north to the, about the most remote settlement uh, in the whole of New England, in Hadley. Uh, and there they spent some years. And these were tiny places. Hadley only probably had about 50 houses in it. So you were very conspicuous if you turned mm. up as a couple of strangers in such a place. So they, they really did have to hide either in cellars or in barns or in the attic. And they were just, they vanished, really. And it's... It's very haunting, and I suppose, in a way, that the way we all went through lockdown also influenced the book. You know, that curious not being able to go out, um, the way that time doesn't hang heavy so much as rather speed up. The days are formless. The nights are full of dreams and memories. Um, so there's a bit of lockdown, oddly enough, in the book as well. The, the role of religion plays an enormous part, both in terms of what Cromwell thought, what the king thought, and what Whaley and Gough think, and indeed all the people that they meet on their way. I mean, that the, their beliefs are so uh, adamant um, that God is going to sort everything out, that the year 1666 has got some super significance. Um, how much were they governed by it? How much did oh. they really believe? Completely. I mean, I think one of the problems about writing of these in the about these eras is it's very hard for us to comprehend how important God was uh, to them, um, a realistic force that is affecting everyday life, you know. And particularly the uh, Cromwellians, the Puritans, believed that the world was a, like a sort of theatre in which God's um, um, wishes or beliefs were shown by, by, by what happened. So that when um, Parliament scored this extraordinary series of victories with this radical, religiously radical army, 
they thought that God, they were God's instruments, as they called themselves. They were that God was totally on their side, and that uh, their victories, the fact that they Cromwell would rise to be effectively the king from from being just a farmer mm-hmm. not so long before, showed that they were you know the elect, the chosen. Um, so it was stunning to them, I think, when they suffered these reverses, which is why they thought that the world must end in 1666 and we'll all come back again. Um, it's hard to convey that. But then on the other hand, we live in an era of such strange superstitions and weird beliefs that maybe we shouldn't be too superior about the past. I mean, there are plenty of people who still believe completely crazy things, but mm-hmm. they sort of function in society. So uh, my task really was to humanise Colonel Whaley and Colonel Goff. And one way I did it was by taking the fact that they would have called one another Ned and Will. So they're Mm -hmm. Ned and Will in the book. Uh, They were very fond of one another. They were fond of their families, loved their families from whom they were separated. Um, And they were were idealists, idealists in a way and revolutionaries, and they're on the run, they're hunted, and on the run from a terrible punishment. So all of these things, I think, make it possible for the reader to sympathise with them. Certainly, you know, I sympathise with them. Yes, well, I I certainly did too, all the way through. And I was very uh, curious about what what you write about the relationship of those early settlers with the Indian tribes that were in the area, especially about this myth of the Angel of Hadley. Well, the Angel of Hadley is a fantastic story. Um, the, the, the Indian War in uh, 1675, um, King Philip's War, as it was called, um, a lot of these isolated communities, especially in the north of Connecticut, were attacked um, and there were massacres and there was an attack on Hadley the town, we call it a town, but really hamlet would be a better word, uh, where uh, Goff was hiding. We know that there was an attack on it. Um, and then for, for years afterwards, there was a kind of folk memory about this elderly military figure who suddenly appeared in the middle of the town and organised the defence. And they saw off the Indians, and then he vanished uh, and this was the Angel of Hadley, as he became known. Um, it seems that this was Goff, who could not hide out in his attic whilst the town was under attack. He had to come out and defend it. And the, the, the reasons why one this is probably a true story is, first of all, the dates fit. There was definitely attack on the town. Secondly, Goff fled from Hadley, had to be remo- had to remove because he'd broken cover. And mm. thirdly, there was clearly an attempt to um, suppress the story in in the official kind of history or the main history of the war that was written by the Puritans. You know, there was correspondence saying, "Let's hope the full story is not told." Um, so this seems to be uh, true, and Walter Scott used it in a novel, in, in one of his novels, and it is, it, the moment I heard of that story, I just thought, well, obviously I've got to put that in, and that's a crucial moment in the, in the plot. So one of the things that's happening all the time that they're there is that there are bounties on their heads, and so they're incredibly reliant on the Puritans' good word, faith, not giving them away. And and 
there are instances where they're nearly given away, but somehow they, they skirt through. Did you, did you know that that was happening? Yes, most of all the, the actual dates and events are true. Um, so we know, we know when they arrived, we know when they went to this town and that town, we know where they sheltered. There are some letters in existence. Um, we know about the reward, £100 on, it, on the heads of each of them, dead or alive. Um, those facts we know. What we don't know is what went on, and we know that they, where they were, and, and they lived in caves for a time and were dealt with, had to fight off wild animals and all sorts of things, which were great to write about. What we don't know, of course, is their relationship, and we don't know what went on in those long stretches of years and years of being together, what it did to them psychologically, um, and for for me as a historical novelist, that's the great gift. Mm. You know, you, you you've got a framework of fact, but then there's just nothing between these kind of struts and scaffolding, and you can just go in and and bu build a, a whole narrative around it. And uh, that was a great uh, pleasure to do. And you know, the, you you write something, and then you think, you know, it probably was something like that. You know. But one of the overriding impressions as you read the book is that um, they went to escape, but they ended up in a prison. And the prison in lots of times was a very small room in which you lived and you waited for someone to dump some food outside in the corridor. So it wasn't really much of a life. So do you think that they, I mean, I know that Naylor, you have Naylor and other uh, people looking to register sites, that a lot of the other ones who hadn't been immediately executed went to Europe and there is a plot to uh, there's a sort of devious plot that is set up to try and flush some of them out well that's true that was the three that were caught in Holland um, who were then taken back and um, subjected to hanging drawing and quartering um, as indeed were a dozen others earlier um, which must have been, I think, I'm sure it was the greatest mass hanging, drawing and quartering uh, in, in English history. Um, they do them all together. Hi, you're back. No, you're on mute. Hi, I'm sorry about that. One of the things that amused me about Boris Johnson's farewell speech in Downing Street was he boasted how good the internet connection now was in the United Kingdom. <laughs> this is not the experience of most of us, to be honest. So where was I, Rose? I'm sorry. Well, we were just talking about, uh, actually, we were talking about hanging, drawing and quartering <laughs> and that how many they went through in a day. And, you know, that it was a peculiarly, actually, I don't think you said this, but we had talked about it before, a peculiarly English punishment. Well, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, every nation had barbarous punishments, uh, but the uh, hanging, drawing, and quartering was... I, a lot of reviews of the novel have dwelt on this, although there's very, there is only about a paragraph in the novel about it. Um, but, you know, it is inescapably an extremely unpleasant uh, business, which involved um, being taken from the... Tower of London um, dragged on a kind of um, sledge or hurdle over the cobbled streets to um, initially to Charing Cross, where they, they they could die looking at the banqueting house where the king had been executed, uh, and you were hanged for just until you blacked out, really, and then cut down, and then um, 
stripped and uh, castrated and then uh, your um, entrails were drawn out of your body. There's about 30-odd feet of entrails uh, uh, and burnt in front of you. And apparently you could go through all this and remain alive. Um, they were incredibly tough, though. Major General Harrison, who was the first to suffer this punishment, actually worked his arm loose and punched the uh, executioner in the head. Um, uh, astonishing. But so it's a gruesome punishment, and then uh, you know the body, the head cut off, and the the body cut into quarters. The heads put on pikes over the gates of the into the city of London, and the, and the, also the quarters of the body sort of nailed up as well. So it's about, it was devised as the most horrible way that you could possibly go in front of crowds of, of, of thousands, many thousands. Um, so you can see why you would want to flee abroad to um, escape this. But I think there's little doubt that many of those who did flee, flee abroad felt that it would have been better to have gone through it um, the Greeks, the, the, I think it was the Greeks, the ancient Greeks said that exile was a worse fate than death. Mm. And um, I think for Wally and Goff, in some ways, these endless years, uh, hiding, fearful of every step on outside, every knock on the door, must have been a long, drawn-out um, torment. But also they became... Um... They became useless once they were in their exile. They didn't seem to be either, you know, leading a rebellion or trying to, you know, get the troops together to to make a fight back. I mean, they just hid, which is also yeah. a very passive way of survival. Yeah, there was no alternative. I mean, when they were in New Haven, Wally, Whaley and Goff drilled the militia, quite a sizable militia in New Haven, and did talk about, well, maybe we could raise enough troops that if the English come after us, we can see them off, which is kind of embryo uh, American war of independence right there against the king. But in the end, the numbers didn't work, of course. And uh, so they were reduced to fleeing. And you must bear in mind, these were these had been in the ruling elite of the country for more than a decade. They were wealthy, uh, respected, powerful. Uh, England would split into 10 regions, each presided over by a major general, and both Whaley and Gough were among the 10 regional commissioners, as it were. So these were big figures, and they left wives and children behind uh, and wealth, and their families lost all property, everything, every regicide, they were stripped of, the families were punished as well. They were lost all belongings, uh, all the shelter over their heads. And part of the novel is I wanted to describe what it was like for the for the Colonel Goff's wife, the, the daughter of Whaley, yes, what it was like for her to try and survive in this environment. So that's a very um, graphic part, I think. I mean, I found it extraordinary, A, because she's living in, those streets which are now you know parts of the city and so wealthy and she's sort of surviving in one room how did she survive given that everything was taken away from her? she had what four children or five children she had five children we don't really know with any detail how she did survive she continued to write to her husband and so and uh, give him progress reports from time to time. I mean, the correspondence was very intermittent and it was took a couple of years before she could, she was able to write to him. Uh, we know that times were hard because she often said that, 
they relied on charity. They moved from um, kind of you know poor poorish accommodation to even worse accommodation. She somehow survived the plague and the fire of London, uh, and then she vanishes from history, as indeed does uh, Colonel Goff. Um, Whaley, we know, died in America. Spoiler alert, but mm-hmm. uh, he did. Um, but we don't know what happened to Colonel Goff and his wife, which, of course, allows me as a novelist to speculate. My rule in these, uh, in, in these um, historical novels I write is always to, um, to never write anything which we know for certain did not happen. That's but a good beyond, yeah, but beyond that, to be free to speculate and 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 to invent, and uh, so that's what I was able to do. And did the act of oblivion work? I mean, were the I mean, I know fifty nine people, but obviously there were many, many more than fifty nine people. I mean, did it actually settle the country? I mean, given how dissolute Charles the Second was as well, and that he was quite a disappointment as a king to people. Um, well. It settled the country to the extent that there was never any chance, never any realistic uh, kind of Puritan parliamentary-led rebellion. There were obviously, of course, there was political instability. There were still the religious differences between Protestant and Catholic. But the, uh, in essence, uh, the civil war was over. So to that extent, yes, uh, it did work. And, um, you know, I think... I think in a funny way that we have lived through the last few days with the death of the Queen, we've seen the seismic shock that is caused even in this secular age when the monarch isn't all-powerful, has virtually no power at all, uh, the shock to people. If you can imagine what it was like in the 17th century, Mm -hmm. therefore, when the anointed king who was dominant in the religion and in every aspect of life, uh, his iconography absolutely everywhere, uh, and that, that's, that he should be uh, executed in public, tried and executed in public. You can imagine the, the shock waves that went through the country and it, which led to this appalled um, retribution um, 11 years later. Um, so it's funny watching all the things that have been going on this last week. I think particularly of Saturday with the Privy Council, and then on, and then the dealing with the Church of uh, Scotland. Uh, the language and the pageantry and the tradition is all really 17th century. I've, I've had it's it's had it's been peculiar having written this had this novel in my head for so long, and then to see so much of it being enacted all around us. What are the things that have particularly struck you that are completely embedded? Well, I think, for instance, the uh, importance of the Scottish religious settlement. Uh, You know, one of the reasons there aren't... I mean, I don't understand in some ways why there aren't more novels about the Civil War. We obsess with the Tudors, Mm -hmm. Henry VIII, Six Wives, and all the rest, and, of course, the split from Rome. But the Civil War is, in many ways, a much bigger event I think one of the reasons it's not written about is it is so complicated, and so the Scottish attitude to the bishops, for instance, and the, and which you know 
you know, that is a central thing. And when, when one watched the events at the weekend, one saw that the Scotland settlement with the Scottish Church was was central to the creation of the kind of peace uh, that followed um, and and led to the union. You know, and that sort of thing is very much part of the Civil War. And it's quite hard and obscure for us to think our way back into these huge issues of... Uh, of religious freedom, um, you know, the Puritans wanted a relationship of an individual to God that didn't go through bishops and all the rest of this paraphernalia and mm-hmm. priests in fancy dress and the rest of it. They thought that this was monstrous. Um, it's quite interesting to see that, you know, the, the, the kind of reverberations of that all these centuries later. But it's it's absolutely true also that both sides, and it comes across so well in your book, I mean, I met someone once who had uh, been on the wrong side during the apartheid era and had been responsible for um, ex- actually executing uh, members of the ANC. And he said, no one goes to war unless they're on the side of God. And it has to be your belief that what you're doing is right. And you see that so strongly between Cromwell and the King that they both have notions of rightness. Yes. Very difficult to know how you reconcile. I mean, I suppose it's also what we're seeing now between a Trumpian America and another America. Both sides think that they're doing the right thing. Yes, I I, I mean, Cromwell and the king are really two sides of the same coin. And um, the king died in absolute belief that he was right. And his certainty that he was right enabled him to put on this extraordinary display at what was effectively a show trial uh, in 1649. He was not told the charges he was going to face. He was not allowed to call any witnesses. He was not given any a defence lawyer. Um, and he simply said, by what right am I being tried? You know, I recognise, I do not recognise this authority. And he refused to plead. And eventually it was a bit of a, a, a disaster for the um, parliamentary side. And similarly on the scaffold, um, he, he remained completely serene. Uh, and, you know, I go from a corruptible world kingdom to an incorruptible kingdom. Um, similarly, the regicides were absolutely convinced of their own uh, rectitude and died with equal bravery uh, when their turn came. This is so. This absolute certainty of faith um, that and that God is on your side. Cromwell attributed all the victories in the Civil War that he all the battles that he won to God. Always, God made them as stubble to our sword. Uh, he wrote. Um, I mean, you know, it's 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 an extraordinary. Uh, uh, time and uh, I started off thinking that I would have been a roundhead and finished the novel realizing that I'm one of life's cavaliers actually um, and that I would have been although I think I would have been on parliament side I would have been a mod- moderate parliamentarian so I would have been one of those carted off to jail because I wouldn't have voted for the execution of the king I suspect that's where that's my wishy-washy position where I would have been but you can you can hear those words of the kings coming out of Trump's mouth, which is, "I'm right." Yes, I mean it's a joke, isn't yeah. it? That in in America, Trump has to be has to pretend to be a great believer in uh, in God. So he's asked, uh, "Which does he prefer, the Old Testament or the New Testament?" And he says, 
I like them both. I thought one of my favorite moments that, that I've ever seen. He obviously is not even a passing acquaintance with either of them. Um, yeah, no, the world is a strange, strange place, and we should not look down upon uh, the mad, as it seems to many of us, beliefs of the 17th century, because many people in very powerful positions across the world seem to have equally mad beliefs. No, I, I, I think it's incredibly relevant to, to think about that. And also what's worrying is when two sets of beliefs become so entrenched and so far apart, is a civil war the only way you get through it? And it's, you know, you see this divergent thought, which I was I thought about a lot reading your book. Well, I yes. I mean, uh, nothing lasts forever. I mean, I think if I have one thing that I take from the novels I've written, particularly the Cicero books, that what seems, what everyone assumes will last forever does not. And um, America is troubling, and in a funny way, the death of the Queen has sort of heightened that, highlighted it, because there is, for all the problems in this country, as I was saying, there is uh, the deep divisions left by Brexit, the um, trauma of the Mm. pandemic, uh, the huge differential income, um, and the uh, national, you know, consensus falling apart as to whether the union can hold. Despite all that, rising still is the monarchy and is this thing that binds the country and links us into the past. And um, you have to look at America now and wonder whether that exists there and whether... um, there could not be a second civil war in America that um, simply because things do not go on forever. We all, I mean, I certainly never expected the Soviet Union to collapse in my lifestyle lifetime, and yet suddenly uh, it went uh, very, very quickly. Uh, so this is the thing that fascinates me, is this interrelation between the human beings, their beliefs, characters, politics. Um, this is the stuff that I love to write about. And you do it incredibly well. Thank you. Um, you. I'm going to come to questions because we've got a lot, actually. Starting with Susan Biddle, did the act of oblivion and the act of indemnity have any precedence in England or in other countries after similar revolts? I mean, you mentioned truth and reconciliation. I think there was an earlier act of um, oblivion, but I I fear I can't remember what exactly it concerned. But... uh, no, I don't. I don't know of anything that was quite as complicated as this piece of legislation, which took a long time to go through um, Parliament. There was a lot of dispute over whose names should be uh, put on the death list or the wanted list, and and who who shouldn't. And it was until they could get over this bit of legislation, you know, the, 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 it wasn't possible for Charles II's government to settle down and hide. Who was a fa- fascinating figure for me, and I put. He has quite a strong part in the novel. Yeah. Hyde, aka later Lord Clarendon, the Earl of Clarendon, he wants to get the whole thing settled and out of the way so they get on with addressing the problems of the country. And he is irritated by this ever expanding list of people who have to be arrested. Um, but, you know, uh, and also I, I'm not sure really that Charles. The second, who had many defects, but I don't think vindictiveness was one of them. Um, uh, I don't think he really wanted to see this thing going on and on either. 
but yeah, no, it was it was effective legislation, and um, I think I I hadn't realised its central importance in, until I wrote the novel. Um, can you expand on how the settlement between Crown and Parliament enabled the scientific revolution, which you mentioned earlier in your talk? Well, I mean, obviously, this is difficult um, to draw a direct causal link, but. Um, I think that there was um, uh, a sense of some freedom in the air in uh, England, that there was no absolutist control, uh, as there had been under Charles, or indeed under Cromwell, of what people could publish. Um, and I think, um, incidentally, the Act of Oblivion, remember that also astonishing that John Milton managed to survive, who really should have been joined the regicides because he had, he had pamphleteered energetically on behalf of the regicides. Um, <clears throat> I think there was this general sort of um, a greater tolerant atmosphere, and there was the, the whole coffee house revolution, people mm -hmm. meeting, merchants meeting, uh, Newton, the Royal Society being established. The uh, You know, it seems to have come about because the Civil War was settled um, um, and, and, the, and there was this sort of sense of, um, to a degree, um, toleration, which you didn't get elsewhere in the world. And a lot of things seem to have come together all at once. I mean, Cromwell provided um, superb um, administration. If you read Pepys' diaries, quite often the people refer to, you know, sotto voce, it was, things were run better in Oliver's day. Um, you know, so there's a professionalization of yeah. um, society. There was a certain, I mean, the other thing is that Cromwell, although he was a strict Puritan and so on, he was quite tolerant of other people. But Jewish people in particular, he encouraged uh, the, the, a return of Jews to uh, uh, Britain. Um, I mean, it, you know, historians debate this stuff endlessly, but I certainly don't think there's any accident that uh, the great flourishing of science and commerce and expansion that occurred in from Britain um, came after the um, 1666 and then, of course, later 1688. Um, does Naylor's character compare with Sir George Downing, the, reg the continental regicide hunter? Oh, well, Downing is the great villain of the book, as far as I can see, and it's perfectly appropriate that uh, prime ministers live in the street named after him, um, because he was the uh, most uh, unpleasant piece of work, um, treacherous. Um, he was started off as a born or at least brought up in New England. He was one of the first people to go to Harvard College, emerged as a preacher for um, a Puritan. And then he went to uh, England when the Civil War broke out. He was taken up by John Oakey and was the um, a chaplain to Oakey's regiment. Mm -hmm. um, caught Cromwell's eye, and was appointed um, uh, ambassador eventually to The Hague. Um, once things started to go bad, badly for the Commonwealth, he then switched sides and started informing on people and acting as a spy for Charles II. And then Charles II appointed him as uh, ambassador in The Hague. And in that role, he betrayed Oki and two others. And they, they were hanged, drawn and quarters. And Oki 
cursed him on the scaffold, this man who he'd taken into his household, who had, who had led him and betrayed him in this way. And Downing is an out-and-out villain, as far as I can see. Well, how did he get Whereas Naylor, I don't, I, don't find Naylor a villain, I don't find Naylor a villain particularly in the novel. How did he end up getting Downing Street named after him? It's quite a good street in terms of its location to Parliament and everything. Uh, well, I think you're now, Rose, unfortunately straying outside the area that I researched. I can only do so much. But, uh, I mean, that, that, is, that, is where, that is where it was. And his contemporaries really, really disliked him very much. Okay. I, bet, I bet in your very elevated um, listeners or viewers of this podcast. There'll be people who know about how Downing um, and Downing Street, as it were. <laughs> um, this is an interesting question. Was the committee in charge of the search and prosecution of the regicides a forerunner for the Crown Prosecution Service? Just a thought, Starmer would be good casting for the chap in charge. That's from Claire Clifford. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know who... I mean, we, there was seemed to be about four or five members of it um, presided over, I expect, by Hyde, uh, Morris, the uh, Secretary of State, and uh, uh, Ashley um, uh, Cooper, and um, one or two others who we know were involved in interrogations and the rest of it. I mean, who knows really um, how the whole administration of it was done? There were various. The intelligence was quite sophisticated in those days. There was a code breaker, a cipher expert, who deciphered the king's correspondence after it was captured in the Civil War. Um, he he was at um, he was a professor at Oxford, and he was obliged to switch sides and work for the new regime. And they broke the ciphers of the regicides corresponding with one another. The head of the um, post office. Uh, in London, was involved. He, they opened the letters um, and then resealed them and passed them on. So it was quite an intelligence uh, network operating in London that was dedicated to tracking these people down. And I like that procedural aspect of, uh, you know, the embryo intelligence service in the 17th century uh, was interesting to write about. So you obviously did an, an amazing amount of research, How, and it, it it always feels in your books, you know, you you layer the knowledge very lightly. But where did you? Two questions here about, you know, where did you find all this out from? Were there particular historical archives or collections? Well, I read sort of. What I do is I sort of go I go a great sweep of of what I can find, focusing as much as possible on original documents. So I found and bought uh, the seven huge, immense volumes of the state papers of John Thurlow, who was Oliver Cromwell's secretary. And although they, they were useful to me because both Whaley and Gough wrote to Thurlow, but they were useful to me just for the language and just for a sense of this kind of spider web of control because Thurlow was in charge of the intelligence services and everything else. And a lot of the letters are cipher, either that he sent or that he intercepted. And it was interesting to see all that. So I just sort of hoover up everything I can and found out quite a lot of things I realised I should aren't in uh, the textbooks just in the process of doing this. Um, so that, you know, that was very exciting. There's huge resources now available on the internet if you know how to use it. Um, there was, uh, I kept coming across 
uh, reference in the DNB and another couple of books, an unpublished M. Phil thesis written in 1973, so 50 years ago, by uh, Jeffrey Jagger, J-A-G-G-A-R, uh, and I, it was called The Whaley Family in Nottinghamshire, and I could not find this thing anywhere. And eventually I resorted to the phone book and found a Jagger of that spelling living in Oxford and rang the number, and it was Jeffrey Jagger's widow who hunted out this handwritten thesis, MPhil thesis, which I got hold of. And Jagger had discovered the name... The name of Whaley's wife was Catherine Middleton, spelled with a Y, curiously, the Middleton. And um, he he sort of, but he went off on the wrong track. And because this Catherine Middleton, we know from the letters, had a brother with an odd name, Burdett, uh, it was possible for me to find on the internet the real Catherine Middleton. And so I, in a few minor ways, that and the birth date and place of Goff, um, I was able to, uh, you know, discover new things, not huge things, not, nothing revolutionary, but but in the terms of, of Wally, Whaley and Goff, I did find out new things. But Catherine has died by the time your book starts, yes? Um, Whaley is a widower? Well, she dies soon after the book uh, opens. We know from the correspondence with Thurlow that um, she had a late pregnancy at the age of nearly 40. Most of these characters I wrote about, I found, had second wives because the first wives all died in childbirth. Whaley's first wife died in childbirth. Catherine was his second wife. She had a terrible miscarriage when she was about 39. And I don't, and it seems her health uh, never recovered from that. And she had a sort of breakdown. So these sorts of things, when you find them, they really help you build a, a character and and uh, and yes, yeah, so, so so there's almost limitless amount of research you can do. You can just keep on going and going and going until eventually you reach a point where you just say, "Well, I just have to write the book now." <laughs> so someone's also asked how you choose your subjects because um, they've ranged from Nazi Germany to Pompeii and now New England. I and mean, you said that this came up on Twitter as a greatest manhunt, uh, and therefore to. Uh, compelling to ignore. How do you decide where you're going to go next? Because you're Ent- very diverse. Entirely randomly. Um, I see, uh, you know, the new Pope, uh, Pope Benedict being uh, enthroned and or, or, or announced on the balcony and the faces clustered, okay. the cardinals clustered at the window. And I think, oh, I wonder what went on behind the scenes to get him to this place. And, and that becomes a novel. Uh, or... Uh, in the case of... I didn't think of that novel, by the way. Did you ever get any feedback on the fact that you wrote about what happened in the room? Well, I did get feedback from Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, who I spoke to when I was starting the novel, and then I sent it to him with some trepidation, <laughs> I have to say. And uh, anyway, I got a most charming letter back saying, um, I did enjoy your novel. That's exactly what it was like. And Cardinal Lamelli, my central character, he said, is exactly as all we cardinals would wish to be. Um, as to the end, I just told myself it was only a story. <laughs> and then he said, um, I have given a, a copy of your book to the Pope, but I have never, I've never heard anything back from the Vatican about it, unfortunately. <laughs> but, the, but the question goes on, where are you going to go next? Are you going to, do you know at this moment? 
I don't really know. Um, I have a. I generally have about two or three ideas, and that I've had kicking around for some years, and then whichever seems the strongest, uh, I will try and write. So, but I only finished this novel in July, and I've because I wasn't able to do any publicity for uh, my last novel because of COVID. It's three years since I've been out publicising a book, and I felt the urge to just go out and meet my readers again and do events and get out into the country and so i'm i'm a bit behind normally i would be at this stage really starting to close in on something so i could start writing it in january but i'm not sure i'll be able to do it this time so we're actually now just about out of time but i just have i have one question and i feel a bit complicated about the answer but the fact that the polanski film cannot be shown what what do you feel about that well, this is the know, office of the gentleman. An office and a spy. Well, obviously, I'm very uh, sad about it. It's a great film, uh, and it won the Jerry Prize at Venice and got a standing ovation and was number one at the box office in France. And uh, uh, it's certainly one of, I would say, I mean, I'm biased because I wrote the screenplay, but I, th I think it's one of his best films. Uh, and, of course, I'm very sorry that nobody in the English-speaking world can see it unless they speak very good French and order the DVD from Amazon.fr. Uh, there's no subtitled edition. No, of no. There may be a pirated one on the internet somehow. You can generally find these things, but not that I'm aware of. Um, and I can understand where people are coming from, that they don't want to go and see it because of his past and what they believe that he's like. Uh uh, and that's entirely their privilege, and I respect it. Um, but on the other hand, I think for all those other adults uh, in the world, apart from them, um, they should be free if they want to get to to view it. But um, yeah, there we go. It is, it is that is where we are, unfortunately. And uh, I'm sorry that people won't get to see it. I sometimes think that in my declining years, I will be spending them going around the country to small film festivals after Roman's gone. Mind you, he might well outlive me, but he's nearly 90. But uh, and, and just speaking at festivals, introducing this film, which can now be shown for the first time. Well, that, that may be. I, I can tell you, I'll, I'll definitely be there. I, I loved uh, that book. I thought it was, it's an extraordinary story and you did it very well. But anyway, you've done this one wonderfully. And Please, everyone, I have a copy, but I think it's the right cover. Um, it's a great, great read, and thank you so much for sharing all that with us. And It's really uh, fantastic to have it in the, the week of when we have got now Charles III. It, uh, I think you, if you were looking at the stars, you'd say that was a pretty lucky moment. So, <laughs> I'm, Thanks, glad, I'm glad it's landed that way for you, and I hope it does brilliantly, and I know that it will. And thank you so much for joining us. And um, everyone, come back and join us if you have time on... Uh, Thursday when we have the amazing uh, Carlo Rovelli joining us and talking with Oliver Berkman and Carlo's book about time. Carlo's an old favourite of us at 5 by 15 and he'll be here at half past six. So we'll see you then. And Robert, thank you and good night. Thank you. <laughs>